Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible offers a massive selection of audiobooks of every genre. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free audiobook. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast and get a free audiobook, so why wouldn't you? As a longtime Audible user myself, today I'm recommending The Man Who Saved the Union, Ulysses S. Grant in War and Peace by H.W. Brands. Really good groundbreaking biography of one of America's greatest generals with an interesting reevaluation of his controversial presidency. And it's free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod. On with the show. Welcome to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. Today's episode is less scripted, less polished, rustic, if you will. Grab a chair and your drink of choice and get ready to hear all about the American Civil War, its unfiltered soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast, and welcome back to Unfiltered Soldiers, the USP's Unhinged Rant Edition. I remain your host, James Hauser, and what we got going on today is the first Unfiltered Soldiers of Season 2. Now, you may not know what this is. It's been a while since I've done an Unfiltered Soldiers. Most of my episodes, guys, are scripted. I write them out to give myself at least some sort of framework before I record them. So I have all the quotes and everything, I have the dates all right. These episodes are not scripted. These are just me ranting about a topic I want to rant about. No music, minimal editing, just me and a beer and an outline and a couple of books at hand in case I need to look something up. And I tend to ramble a lot. I tend to go off on weird tangents, and that's this is my place to do that. Okay, so uh, what beer am I drinking today? I'm drinking a Wicked Weed Brewing Dr. Dank IPA. Uh, I'm, as far as I know, there's no actual weed in this, which I'm, I'm, I'd be banned from drinking anyway, or... Have anyway, because I am in the army. Uh, it's from Asheville, North Carolina. There's a lot of good beer, a lot of good breweries up there. I haven't uh, haven't really tried this one yet. And you know what? It's actually good. It's hard to make a really good IPA. I, I follow, you know, Sturgeon's Law about beers and IPAs in general. I like my IPAs, but I acknowledge that 90% of them are pretty garbage. But uh, this one's actually really good. A Wicked Weed Brewing Dr. Dank IPA. Yeah, I like that. It's got the it's got the right balance. It's not too hoppy. It's not too bitter because there's like this bitters arms race that goes on and, and stuff is just becomes undrinkable at a certain point why, why would you even, you're not even enjoying it at that point you're just like this is so bitter i love bitterness i want to hear my tongue rotting off yeah it's not fun at all okay yeah where was i oh all right all right okay the books are the books we have i have my civil war dictionary mark m boatner the third i had a copy of this when i was like 11 or 12 and i thumbed through it so much that it literally fell apart so i had to buy a new one um, uh, James B. McPherson, uh, James M. McPherson, Battle Cry of Freedom, the Civil War Era, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, the, the number one, one volume history of the American Civil War, 100%. It's, it's engaging to read. It's an amazing read. And it tells you also about the era and about the culture and politics and society and stuff. And you guys know I'm all about that. And also, uh, Why the South Lost the Civil War, with about four authors, Richard Berenger, Herman Hathaway, Archer Jones, and William Still. It's from University of Georgia Press. It's uh, a lot of stuff I take from there focuses on the morale and psychological aspects of the Confederacy Civil War. It's really good read. It can get a bit dry. It's really long, but that's what I'm here for, right? All right, so those are the books I have at hand. That's the beer I have at hand. So you know, we all know what I'm working with today. If you didn't figure it out from the everything I just said, <laughs> the topic I've chosen today is the American Civil War. 
I figure it's a good theme. I just said that episode on the Civil War in Indian Territory not long ago, and this just seemed appropriate. So, the Civil War was my first historical love, like the first topic that really sunk me in as a kid. I remember when I was about nine or ten, I was in a at my elementary school, I picked up this little old faded book. It was called Our America. And you can tell how old this book was because the book ended in <laughs> with, uh, and then America declared war on Germany. And someday the United States will defeat the massive power of Adolf Hitler. And the book was published in 1942. But like the, the cover was basically coming off. It was a fabric cover. Had little cartoon illustrations of like, uh, Abraham Lincoln kicking a Confederate in the butt, and uh, George Washington wagging his finger at people. It's, it's, it, was, it was really corny, but it just hooked me. But always the one thing that always thrilled me and interested me was the, the long midsection on the Civil War, which, of course, was like the thing that every, history, every American history book dwells on and focuses on. So that's when I started reading a bunch of books about it. And I got to the point where I was like 10, 11, 12. I was... My mom was going to college, and I would just tag along with her. I'd just sit in the college library while she was doing homework, and I'd just go to the Civil War section and read Civil War books. I was a weird little kid, I'll be honest with you. And uh, So yeah, first historical topic that hooked me as a kid. And to be honest, I keep learning about it. It's not one of those things where like I learned it all when I was 11, and I know it all now. Contrary to popular belief, I do not know everything. But I continue to learn. I think that's really important. The more I have read, the more I've read about the Civil War, the more I'm fascinated with stuff I didn't know about. Like I said, I didn't know much about the Indian Territory War until I read up about it. Because I heard there was a story there. I went and looked it up. There was a huge story there. But I keep learning. There's things, lots of things I once believed or once thought I knew that I have changed my mind on. There's stuff that I thought was more important that is less important. So stuff that I thought was less important that's much more important. Uh, when I started reading about the economics of the Civil War, that in the logistics, that was something that really interested me because that was stuff that was so, it's it's not, not the kind of thing you'll see in the Ken Burns documentary, basically. So, and more importantly, I think just from a uh, cultural perspective, I grew up in the South. I was a Southern boy, and as a Southern boy, I had certain beliefs and views on certain things and certain aspects of the Civil War. Just where I grew up, the books I had at hand, the people I talked to, that I absorbed those beliefs. That's what, that's what I had. But when I went to college, when I went to the army and started doing a lot broader reading, I found my own historical research outside that little bubble of Southern Virginia. Well, I came, I no longer hold most of the beliefs I held when I was a teenager. And my opinions have changed radically since then. And that gives me some perspective, I think, on a, a point of view that some folks might lack when they're thinking about the Civil War. Uh, the thing I want to talk about especially is the myth of the lost cause. This, this is what's called the myth of the lost cause, and that's the whole romantic, idealistic view of the Confederacy and the Southern ideal and Southern honor and Southern values as the nobler, kind, almost you know, righteous side of the American Civil War. There's a strong pull of Southern mythology and culture, especially for people who were brought up in it. And of course, this translates into like modern memeology with, uh, the, uh, there's a, there's an aggressive pushback against this ever since the seventies, eighties with a lot of folks, you know, standing the union, essentially 
you know, Union soldiers drinking Confederate tears, Sherman with fires in his eyes, burn it down. And I think that's pretty funny, usually. Like, it's, it's, it's usually a pretty good joke. But it also, it kind of distorts the reality as well, to a degree. All memes do. That's why they're memes. So, there's all these conventional views of the Civil War. And so, what I'm going to try to do today, I'm going to try to talk about Civil War myths. Civil War misconceptions that I think have been rooted in modern you know, modern ideas of what the war was like, what the war was about. And some of these are pretty basic levels. Some of these are going to be pretty obvious, but I think some of them won't be. I think some of them will delve into deeper issues about the Civil War. So Civil War myths are important to me, especially because not just my first historical love, not just one of the first things I've had to break myself of as far as old mindsets I had when I was younger, because some of them are still persistent today. And myths don't just stay myths. And they aren't just about the past. Myths are about us. Myths are us telling ourselves certain stories in a certain way that means something to us. That's what myths are. That's what the Greek myths were for them, the Greek, the, the legends of their ancestors. And for lots of Southerners, the story of the Civil War is the story of their ancestors. But, you know... All our, our ancestors weren't always great people sometimes. And we sometimes we have to look in the mirror and acknowledge that. I'm going to be talking about that aspect a lot, looking at our past honestly coming up in the next few episodes. Because in a couple of weeks, we're kicking off the Philippine-American War series. And that's going to be really heavy on contrasting the image, the ideal, the dream of America's history with the reality. That's the entire theme of that series. So look forward to that. But until then... Grab a beer if you have one, please don't if you're driving, and let's talk about some Civil War myths. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. There are no sources for this episode besides the one I've listed, so check those out. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. This episode is just me ranting with minimal fact-checking, but I haven't led you wrong so far, I hope. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. All right, let's get rolling with the big one. The one, you know, everybody's waiting for. The one that's going to make everybody mad right off the bat if they believe otherwise. The first myth is that the Civil War was about anything but slavery. The Civil War is about slavery. Okay, now that, now, now that people who are upset have left. All right. Civil War is about slavery. Why was the Civil War about slavery? Every major political dispute leading up to the war was directly concerning slavery. Bleeding Kansas, the Dred Scott decision, the Compromise of 1850, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, the Fugitive Slave Law. All this stuff was directly associated with slavery. This happened in the 10 years before the Civil War. Uncle Tom's Cabin was published. All this stuff that happened was directly leading up to the Civil War, and all of it directly involved slavery. So, when people say the Civil War wasn't about slavery, they'll come up with some with a certain set of, you know, well, the states had a constitutional right to secede, but why were they seceding? Or, the South wanted to be independent. Yeah, but why did the South want to be independent? Or, well, the Southern economy just was hurting under Northern tariffs. Why was the Southern economy different from the North's? North was more agricultural than the South. Believe it or not, the North had a higher food yield than the South about the Civil War. It's why the South was starving. But, so why? Whenever there's a, like, they say, well, the Civil War wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights, or about tariffs, 
or about Southern independence, or we just wanted to be left alone to do as we pleased. You hear that a lot. We wanted to be left. We, the South wanted to be left alone. We didn't want the North interfering in our affairs. Which affairs? Which affairs? Which states' rights? Because you'll see a lot of people cloak this language in language of, well, the South was trying to defend their institutions. There was only one real institution the South had that was different from the North, and that was the institution of slavery. The South's economy was a slavery-focused economy. It was agricultural, and this was on purpose. The South did not want an industrialized economy. They viewed it as uh, vulgar, as uh, corrupting and decadent. Um, I've mentioned this to other people in passing, but there is aesthetically, not, not morally, but aesthetically, a lot of connection between the Southern vision of their ideal society and Jacobitism, the Jacobite vision of their ideal society. They are not remotely morally comparable. I mean, the Jacobites were not fighting to keep their slaves. But the idea that there's this traditional hierarchy, a, a divinely ordained, God-ordained hierarchy that has been torn asunder by mo the modern world, that finance and industry and capital are, you know, destroying the fabric of society, and that older ways, traditional ways, like the southern slave system, are preferable to that. There was a lot of talk in the South before the war began about how, you know, our system of slavery, at least it's better than the wage slavery, the wage labor going on in the North, which is sort of a, a accidentally Confederate communist there for a second. It sounds more like Marx than it does Jefferson Davis for a little bit. But they, they didn't actually care about the people in the factories up North. They were trying to defend their institution of slavery. The so Civil War is about slavery because the Southerners were convinced that Northern abolitionists were trying to destroy slavery, which, fair. But here's the thing. A lot of these justifications, a lot of these post hoc justifications for why the South was fighting the Civil War, for our independence, for our freedom to defend Southern honor and Southern rights. I mean, one of the key things we could ask here is what exactly did the South lack inside the United States that, wanted, that caused it to form a separate nation? Which rights did they not feel like they had that they would have in their own Confederate States of America, that they didn't have in the United States of America. What's the key difference here? The reason Confederate identity, Southern identity, was not really a valid one, like there's not really a good reason to separate other than slavery, is that most nationalisms, which you said, like most separatist movements, like say Ukraine not wanting to be part of Russia, or um, America not wanting to be part of Britain, the, the most of these arise from countries that have at least something that makes them distinctive, something that separates them. So, you know, Ukraine has a separate language, a separate national culture, a separate identity. They've developed for centuries apart from Russia, with sometimes within the Russian Empire, but apart from Russia. The United States and Britain, the United States had developed a local community. They developed a local sense of kinship, a feeling of that we are Americans. But the Southerners... The only thing that really made them separate, because they were participating in the Union, they, they had full representation in the Union, more than representation, thanks to the Three-Fifths Compromise. They had, they were more, they were overpowered within the United States. They had more power than the Northern states did. So what was the key thing that separated the South from the North? What was the key difference? What was the key right they didn't have? They felt like slavery was under attack. They felt like Northern 
restrictions on where they could take their slaves and how they could practice slavery outside of the southern states was infringing on their property rights. That was the key issue, the property rights of southern slave owners. That was what they felt was under attack. That's what they felt was under threat from Abraham Lincoln's election to the presidency in 1860. So the inciting incident of the Civil War is Abraham Lincoln is elected president, and then immediately the southern states secede. They, they secede not because they, they lost a presidency, but because they felt like Abraham Lincoln, who was noted for his anti-slavery views, would try to end the institution of slavery, or at least curtail it. I think this goes with, this is another misconception, is that there's a lot of people said after the war, after the war, like, well, slavery would have died out on its own. There wasn't a reason to fight a war to destroy it. Slavery was never stronger than in the months leading up to the Civil War, never stronger as an institution, and Southern slaveholders were wanting to expand it. They were trying to push it into Northern states and the Western territories. That was the struggle of the 1850s. Slavery wasn't just sitting in the southern states, minding its own business. I mean, the slaves would beg to differ on whose business that was, of course. But slavery wasn't just a stagnant institution that was slowly dying out. It was spreading. They were trying to spread it. They were trying to make it larger. That's what the filibusters were all about. That's what the the bleeding Kansas struggle was when there were these two territories, Kansas and Nebraska. And there's a law passed that says the Residents of these states are going to vote on whether or not they'll be free or slave states. And immediately a bunch of both anti-slavery and pro-slavery militants flood these flood Kansas and fight each other over whether it'll be a slave state or a free state. I mean, if slavery was just minding its own, if the slaveholders were just minding their own business, why are they trying to gain more territory for slavery? Another big one is in 1857, there's this thing called the Dred Scott decision, a big Supreme Court decision. And it's, you know, it's in the list of things leading up to the Civil War, and I think people might underestimate how important this Supreme Court decision was that completely undermined the legitimacy of the Supreme Court for the next decade or so. And the Supreme Court basically said this: there was a slave, uh, Dred Scott, his owner brought him north into Illinois, in Indiana somewhere, and lived there for a few years. And Dred Scott was like, I was in Illinois, we lived in Illinois. Slavery is illegal in Illinois, therefore I am free. Like, you can't just bring your this institution of slavery into a free state and have it be valid. But the Supreme Court ruled that no, not only is it, you know, not only do you have no standing to sue because you are a slave and a black person and therefore have no rights in the United States, which is why, you know, <laughs> there's not only that, but there should there are no restrictions on where a slave owner can take his property. That essentially meant that any free state in the North could not regulate slavery within its own boundaries by the Supreme Court. That's not states' rights. In fact, the Fugitive Slave Act, another one big event leading up to the Civil War, where um Southern states essentially got this law passed in Congress where northern states had to help them track down uh, escaping slaves. You could conscript people into the militia in northern states, whether they wanted to be or not, to track down escaping slaves. Northern states resisted this tooth and nail, and resistance by the northern states to the Fugitive Slave Act was one of the main uh, grievances the southern states cited in their ordinances of secession when they were seceding from the Union. So what I'm saying with all this is that 
States' rights does not work as an argument, because the more time went on, the more the southern states were trying to impose the system of slavery on the southern states were trying to impose the system of slavery on the north and on the western territories. Slavery was not stagnant. They were trying to expand it. They were trying to push the boundaries. And when a president in 1860 was elected, like Abraham Lincoln, who was not only not going to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act, was going to support Kansas statehood as a free state, was going to do all these things that the southerners... He, Lincoln had no power to get rid of slavery by presidential fiat. He couldn't do it if he wanted to, and he wanted to. But the Southerners saw him as an like that was the that was the end of their attempts to expand slavery outside the South to make it the dominant labor force in the United States. That is why they seceded. They seceded to form a separate institution, that a separate government that would protect slavery in all its forms. And you can see this because when you ask about why the Civil War happened, people. The Confederate leaders, like Jefferson Davis and them, they said all sorts of stuff after the war was over. You can't look at that. That's them trying to justify it after the fact, when it's all said and done. By that point, by the like 1870s, 1880s, slavery wasn't cool anymore. You couldn't say you were fighting a war to keep your slaves. The Europeans would not buy your book if you said that. So you had to find other ways to say it. No, it was about states' rights. It was just about independence. We just wanted to be free of the Yankees. The right to live as we please. One could argue, you know, hey, what about the slaves' right to live as they please? They were one-third of the Southern population. Did they get a vote on leaving the Union? Of course they didn't. But to the point, like, you don't ask the Confederates why they left the Union after the war. You look at what they said when they were doing it. You look at what they said when they thought they were winning. There's your evidence. Like, if you look at what the Southerners said in 1861, 1862, if you ask them why you leave in the Union, they'll say slavery. 100%. Every time. Like, if you, we, our prime piece of evidence for this are the ordinances of secession. These are the uh, laws that the Southern states passed declaring we are seceding and this is why. Every Southern state passed one of these. And you know what they mention a lot? They talk about slavery. Let's see. I'm going to quote something. I'm not going to do the quote thing because I'm not editing this like that. First off, let's ask Georgia. Georgia, why did you leave the Union? Georgia says, quote, The people of Georgia, having dissolved their political connection with the government of the United States of America, present to their Confederates and the world the causes which have led to the separation. For the last 10 years, we have had numerous and serious causes of complaint against our non-slaveholding Confederate states with reference to the subject of African slavery. They have endeavored to weaken our security, to disturb our domestic peace and tranquility, and persistently refused to comply with their express constitutional obligations to us in reference to that property, and by the use of their power in the federal government have striven to deprive us of an equal enjoyment of the common territories of the Republic." End quote. What is that referring to? That's referring to bleeding Kansas. That's referring to them not being allowed to bring slaves into the territories. Weaken our security. A lot of southern states accused northern abolitionists of trying to start a slave revolt. When John Brown did that in 1859, it scared the pants off of them. Disturb our domestic peace and tranquility. Don't be giving the slaves no ideas about freedom. You're trying to disturb our domestic peace and tranquility. You're trying to undermine our institutions. They love saying that word, institutions. All right, uh, let's let's ask, uh, hey, Mississippi, why did you leave the Union? 
Mississippi, quote, Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. Its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce of the earth. These products are peculiar to the climate verging on the tropical regions, and by an imperious law of nature, none but the black race can bear exposure to the tropical sun. A blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. That blow has long been aimed at the institution and was at the point of reaching its consummation. There was no choice left us but submission. Yeah, Mississippi's not shy about it. Uh, hey, Texas, let's ask Texas. Quote, Texas abandoned her separate national existence and consisted to become one of the Confederated Union to promote her welfare, ensure domestic tranquility, blah, 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 get to the point. She was received as a commonwealth holding, maintaining, and protecting the institution known as Negro slavery, the servitude of the African to the white race within her limits, a relation that has existed from the first settlement of her wilderness by the white race and which her people intended should exist in all future time. So yeah, all these ordinances of secession, all the the declarations the southern states made when they left the Union— all talk about, we want to keep our slaves. We don't feel like we're going to keep our slaves if the federal government has its way, so that's why we're leaving the Union. Uh, Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens made a speech, it's called the Cornerstone Speech, where he basically explicitly said, our nation is founded on the idea, on the, inst- on the principle, the Negro is not equal to the white man. They were very explicit about this when the war began. It was only when they started to lose, and only after they lost, that they started to change the reasons or cloak them in other language to make it seem like the war wasn't about slavery. The South seceded because of slavery. Slavery was the cause of the Civil War. More accurately, to be very precise, secession was the cause of the Civil War. Slavery was the reason for secession. Full stop. You can try to argue with it. You can try to pull stuff out of context and try to say, no, it was about the tariffs. The tariffs. Yeah, okay. Definitely going to start a war over those tariffs you had equal power in voting in the Senate for. There was nothing to separate the South from the Union but the issue of slavery. That was the key issue of the Civil War. Full stop. But there are corollaries to that. And that's going to get into myth number two. Myth number two, everyone on both sides was fighting for the same cause, for or against slavery. This is basically the myth about the motivations of the individual soldiers and the leaders. The idea that every northern soldier fought to free the slaves, every southern soldier fought to keep them. So you got a Confederate soldier and a Union soldier looking at each other across like Shiloh Battlefield or something, and that Union soldier's like, golly gee guys, I can't wait to free the slaves. And the Confederate soldier has like devil horns and saying, like, I can't wait to keep my slaves, I'll kill them to take my slaves. No. When I say the causes of the Civil War, the Civil War was caused by slavery, caused by secession, which was caused by slavery. That does not say anything about the individual motivations of the soldiers. This war was caused by slavery. The almost over a million men who served in the ranks of both Confederate and Union armies had numerous reasons for doing so. And one of the, and a lot of them didn't have a choice. A lot of them were conscripted. The South passed the first conscription law in American history in 1862. The North passed the first in 1863. 
That being said, most of them were volunteers. There were my, the, the conscripts, the draftees were always a minority. And a lot of officers and men didn't trust them. They, would, they had a very high desertion rate. Duh. But the motivation. Why did the soldiers fight? There's actually a very good book about this by James McPherson. Uh, but, so why did the soldiers fight? Union soldiers. Why did the Union soldiers fight? This is the popular misconception. The South went to war to preserve slavery. The North went to war at first. The Union went to war at first to preserve the Union. That was the stated goal. Slavery wasn't relevant to the North, a lot of people in the North. Like, if Abraham Lincoln had come out and said in 1861, Hey, come with me, we're going to go destroy slavery. That wasn't a motivating cause for a lot of Union people. It wasn't a motivating cause for a lot of Northern people. They would have been like, what do we care? That's none of our business. Uh, but to preserve the Union, to preserve the United States intact, to keep intact the nation that Washington and Jefferson and Hamilton had founded, to preserve the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, the Union cause. The Union cause was the core of the North's war effort. Like, if you listen, look at the songs, a lot of the, especially the early songs that are written for the Civil War for the Union, most of the early songs are talking about the traitors, preserving the Union. Battle cry of freedom goes, you know, the Union forever. Hurrah, boys, hurrah. Down with the traitor and up with the star. Rally around the flag, shouting the battle cry of freedom. It was a nationalist cause for the Union. These traitors, who are, who would, at least at first, were assumed to be a minority, you know, a minority of robbers who were trying to make off with half the country, essentially. That was the Union's motivating underlying cause, the Union cause. Slavery was not the main motivating factor for most Union volunteers. The war was about slavery, but most Union soldiers were not fighting to end slavery. That was not their core motivation. It was to defeat the traitors, as they saw it. You can even see this in late, in just after the war. The war wasn't called the American Civil War for a long time. The Union called it just the War of the Rebellion. That was the name they used, most of the Union veterans used. We, we fought against the late rebellion, the War of the Rebellion. The, they're rebels. we got to defeat the rebels. we got to preserve the Union. That was the underlying motivation for most Union soldiers. There were a lot of abolitionists and a lot of Union soldiers. I think the majority eventually came around to the idea that the slaves needed to be freed. But that wasn't the core of the original motivation. That wasn't what brought the Union through to victory. It's even the name. The Union. Not the abolitionist cause. The Union cause. So, while abolitionism in the North was still seen as a fringe opinion in large parts of it when the Civil War began, it was only when midway through the war when Abraham Lincoln used political maneuvering and a lot of good rhetoric to make the Union soldiers believe and the Union people believe that defeating slavery and restoring the Union were actually one and the same. Before this, they were seen as two separate causes. Like, if the South North had won the war in like 1861-62, there's a strong chance that the Southern states would have come back and slavery would have been preserved. It was only after Lincoln was able to meld those two causes, to meld the cause of Union with the cause of abolition, that freeing the slaves became a motivator. Northern motivations, when they weren't being drafted, were largely unionist or nationalist. Southern motivations are varied. First, we really can't deny the basic motivation. There's a much-quoted passage where some Union soldiers asked the Confederates, why are you fighting us? Some Confederate prisoners, and the prisoners said, because you're down here. 
That's a very basic motivation. We can't discount that at all. A lot of Confederates, you know, if you see a Union column tramping through your village, maybe some Union soldiers harass your sister, or maybe they're uh, taking your mom's, you know, taking the food out of your smokehouse or whatever, the meat out of your smokehouse, taking your mom's pillows or whatever. Like, yeah, you're probably going to be pro-Confederate. Just from basic, this is what the Union soldiers did. They invaded our home. I'm going to go join the Confederate Army. You might not have any opinion about slavery at all. Or your community may go. You and your, your, your brothers might be going. Of course you want to go. It's a far-off war. You don't even know any of these people you're going to fight. You might not have any slaves at all, but you're going. Uh, the Northerners, Northern soldiers, they got caught up in the nationalism. They got caught up in the patriotism. They wanted to rally around the flag. They all registered because they wanted to go off together as a community. My brothers went. My friends went. Of course I'm going to go. In a lot, a lot of communities, what's unusual, especially in uh, the Civil War compared to later American wars, like the World Wars, is that if you signed up, usually you as a company were all from like one county, one area. So everybody knew you. You, you your cousins, the dude down the street, you were all probably going to be in the same company. You might be lifelong friends. So you're probably going to go. The individual motivations for fighting the Civil War were not the same as the causes of the Civil War, the cause and motivations. You can, it's hard to think about, like, it's hard to separate in our minds. But if you think about any other war, like, the individual motivations could vary wildly, 100%. That being said, a lot of research has shown that one of the core motivations of the Confederate soldiers, especially later in the war, was the notion that if the North won, the slaves would be freed, and then they would be on an equal level with the whites. The blacks would be on an equal level with the whites. And that was such a, you know, inherent threat to the entire society, the Southern society, the entire white supremacist. Yes, white supremacist. I'm going to use that word because it's exactly what it was. The entire white supremacist society in the South, this threat of just a bunch of suddenly free black people competing with them for jobs and land and uh, holding themselves as equal. A lot of, there's a, there's an old trick in the book where, uh, you know, the, the poorest white man will identify with the richest white man as long as he feels superior to the black man. And that was a core rule of Southern politics up until like the 1960s, 1970s. Some would say it still applies in certain areas of the South. The Southern white people and Southern black people who were both poor and living on, you know, in basically shacks and on their small farms probably had a lot more in common that with each other than, they, than the white people, the poor whites did with the rich whites. But that didn't matter. There was this whole racial context of things. And a lot of Southerners, believe it or not, even if they didn't own slaves, because only a minority owned slaves, that's very, it's very well known. But a lot of them still benefited from the system. They benefited from the low prices, the high prices of labor. They benefited from, they could hire out slaves to work on their farms for a while. They benefited from participating in this racial society where even if, no matter how poor you are as a poor white farmer, at least you have some level below you. And that's a powerful motivating factor to preserve that society, to preserve that sense of self-worth and self-honor that comes with being on at least not the lowest level of society. A lot of research has been done on this. It's still very esoteric, but it comes through a lot in the writings, comes through a lot in the letters, and especially this fear. This is one thing that uh, 
is still persistent sometimes. This fear, everybody, the editors, the newspaper writers, all these, the propagandists in the South have been hitting since the dawn of Southern slavery is if you free the slaves, if you let those people run free, white women will not be safe. White women, the, uh, the trope, the, the uh, image of all these uh, lustful, almost bestial black men pursuing and, you know, forcing themselves on white women. There's actually a very famous movie scene with this trope featured in it from uh, Birth of a Nation, where uh, the white heroine is being chased by this almost like ape-like, you know, blackface actor just leering and vicious and snarling. It's it's frankly shockingly racist, but that was that's a prime example of this propaganda. That was such a common propaganda trope that it's become almost a staple of after the war too for Jim Crow. The whole the whole I think about lynching. Lynching almost always happened after the Civil War when a a white woman was insulted or implied to have been assaulted in some way. A lot of times this didn't even happen, but it was a convenient excuse to enforce that system, enforce that terror. And so you'll see this in the Civil War, the newspaper columns or letters people write wrote to the editor or speeches, you know, about you know, we have to save white women from what will happen if the North wins the Civil War. And if you have been, if you're an 18-year-old Southern boy, and you've been, had it hammered into your head time and again, that, you know, racial disorder is going to threaten your mother, your sister, your daughter, your family, and you probably don't question it. Because all you've seen of the of black people, if you're not a slave owner, is these people who probably hate you, and they probably have a darn good reason to, let's be very honest. But you, there's always this icy fear of what will happen if the racial disorder happens and things go out of whack. And you'll still see traces of this fear today, whenever someone gets really upset about a commercial showing an interracial couple. Racial disorder, that's been such a constant propaganda theme throughout the centuries, that's still very potent today. And it was one of the it was one of the motivators for Confederate soldiers in the Civil War. So yeah, motivation ver- widely varied between the soldiers, and we shouldn't assume that someone was noble or ignoble because of what side they were on, although one side, I believe, was noble and one side wasn't. All right, myth number three. The North and South were both completely on board with their respective war efforts. Like the North was a unified block, and the South was a unified block, and they were fighting each other. Okay, first of all, let's go let's tackle this in order. Okay, the North. It's pretty well known that a lot of that a lot of northern people were not totally on board with the war. They weren't super enthusiastic about it. Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party had to work overtime to keep a majority in both houses of Congress. Abraham Lincoln's political struggles with his own people were always tougher than Jefferson Davis's. The for the North it was a war of choice. It was a war like if the, if the South stopped fighting, there would be no Confederacy. If the North stopped fighting, there would be no war. So Lincoln had to perform a very delicate political balancing act throughout the entire war to keep key demographics and key stakeholders on board during this entire conflict. Because there were very large demographics, very large interest groups in the North that wanted the war to end, that wanted to let the South go or at least bring it back into the Union on the same terms fight a softer war rather than a harder war. Not totally defeat the South, just negotiate with them. Okay, okay, we'll put something in the Constitution that will preserve slavery forever, just come back. So 
Lincoln was never about this, but he had to walk that very fine line. The North had multiple large groups of people that were not pro-war. There were these, uh, the Democrats, the Democratic Party split. There were the war Democrats, which Lincoln always had to work really hard to keep on board. It's one of the reasons he couldn't go too far too fast with the slavery question, because if he lost the war Democrats, his coalition would fall apart. He might lose the war. Uh, and But there was also a faction of peace Democrats who wanted to negotiate and settle with the South. And a lot of these guys were called the um, the copperheads in the North. They, could, they were the, the enemy within, the treasonous Northerners who wanted to negotiate. There's all sorts of great political cartoons of like these snakes circling Lincoln with a big bat trying to fight them off, you know. And uh, this is very pre- prevalent in the uh, old Northwest, like Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, Wisconsin. There was one member of the House of Representatives from Ohio, uh, Clement Vallandigham, who was uh, put on trial and expelled from the Union during the war because he was so he was the leader of the Copperheads. He was openly anti-war and trying to convince draftees not to join the join the join the war. And from exile in Canada, he ran for governor of Ohio in 1863 on the anti-war ticket. Uh, he lost, but uh, it's actually kind of a really fascinating guy. It's actually how he died is a really funny story. I have time. I have time. Okay, so um, he was he was he was practicing law after the Civil War and was trying to prove in a court case that this uh that this gun that the guy had his uh client had was defective and that it could go off for no reason. <laughs> and uh, and he's like, look, see, it, this thing is a hair trigger. It'll go off for any reason. He's demonstrating in court in front of the judge and everybody. He points the gun at himself and shoots it and uh, just messed with it. Didn't realize it was loaded. And he shoots himself in the abdomen and dies, uh, accidentally winning his case, but also killing himself by accident. So, yeah, may- maybe not, you know, a cu- couple, of, couple of Coke short of a Happy Meal here. But seriously, there was a large faction in the North that was not on board with the war. A lot of them were also very wishy-washy about it. So Lincoln had to win those people over sometimes. There were entire sections like Southern Illinois. I think a Grant described it once as almost more Confederate than the Confederacy. It was, it was still very regional. And then there were the border states. These are the states that were on in the middle of the Union, in the middle between the Union and Confederacy, that these were slave states that did not secede from the Union but who were like on the fence tilting back and forth for the first year of the war, 1861. So you got the original Southern states, the original Confederacy that secedes. Then you have four other states that also secede very late after Fort Sumter has been fired on. Those are Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas. But then there are the other slave states, Kentucky, Missouri, Delaware, and Maryland. And they're like tilting back and forth the entire time. As, as this crisis develops. In 1861, most of the Union's and Confederacy's energies on both sides were aimed at securing these border states for one side or the other. Confederacy messed up, and the Union got Kentucky, Missouri, and Maryland, and also the split-off counties of Virginia, which became West Virginia. But my point is, there was div- considerable division within these states over who they should side with. Uh, Kentucky and Missouri both contributed multiple regiments to both sides, Union and Confederacy. But also, importantly, there was division within the core Confederacy states as well. Large amounts of large areas of the Confederacy were very anti-Confederate, anti-slavery even. This was most prevalent in 
Appalachia, of all places. West Virginia, we know about. West Virginia was strongly pro-Union, split off and formed its own state. Before that, it was part of the state of Virginia. But uh, East Tennessee, uh, Western Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, Western North Carolina, Northern Alabama, these were all areas that were not only heavily pro-Union, they contributed troops to the North during the Civil War. When Sherman marched through Georgia, his escort was the 1st Alabama Cavalry, pro-Union. Um, East Tennessee was famously a hotbed of anti-Confederate sentiment, the area around like Knoxville and Chattanooga today. And the Confederacy had to send troops back there to suppress their own uprisings, because they were trying to split away and rejoin the Union. The Confederacy says, you can, we can secede from the Union, but you can't secede from the Confederacy. Too bad. Indian Territory, as we've seen, was very divided. All sorts of different little places where there was lots of pro-Union sentiment in the South, and the South suppressed this mercilessly. Like, you, you, you didn't have freedom of speech in the South. You were talking pro-Union stuff. They'd throw you in prison. This was um, in Western North Carolina, Central North Carolina. There was an entire pro-Union party. But what's weird is that the pro-Union party, there was some people in that pro-Union party that wanted to rejoin the Union because they were worried that if they lost the war, they would lose slavery. And like, no, no, we want to save slavery. We've got to rejoin the Union to save slavery. Weird. But the point is, there were lots of divisions within the South. And that that's almost it's almost worthy of an episode at some point just the uh the pro union confederates and lots of individuals again civil war a lot of individual choices going on there were a few northerners who sided with the south mostly because they had family ties they married into a southern family or whatnot um the confederate general that grant thumped outside of vicksburg general john c pemberton was one of those he was from pennsylvania married into a southern family proved to be one of the most incompetent generals in the south what do you know one of my personal favorites, one of my personal uh, almost heroes, is uh, George Thomas, uh, a Union general, one of the best Union generals, who was Virginian, who was from Southern Virginia. Uh, I actually managed to find and take a picture of his uh, of the historical marker for his birthplace near, I think it's near Emporia or South Hill, Virginia, somewhere like that, when I was up there recently. But George Thomas was part of a slave-owning family. He had uh, barely escaped death at the hands of a slave revolt in 1831 as a very young boy. But he was a officer in the U.S. Army, and when the Civil War began, he stayed loyal to the Union, and he proved to be one of the Union's best generals. Um, permanently alienated him from his family. His sisters, who he loved dearly, never spoke to him again, even when he tried to send them money after the Civil War because the family home had burned down. They, they refused to have anything to do with him. They turned his picture to the wall because he betrayed Virginia. It's a tragic story, but Thomas is, Thomas is a beast. Thomas was a baller. I, I, I'm a big fan of George H. Thomas. But the point being, like, just because you were Northern or Southern didn't mean that you were behind the war. didn't even mean you particularly believed in the cause. Uh, you could be pro-Union and Southern. You could be pro-Confederate Northern. And, uh, or you just didn't want to participate. The largest urban riots in American history happened in 1863, the New York Draft Riots, when the North instituted their draft for the, to bring soldiers into the army, which they've been relying on volunteers up until then, and they had to send troops from the Gettysburg battlefield to go up to New York and quell the disturbances in the New York Draft Riots, mostly Irish immigrants who um, blamed black people for starting the war, so they were hunting down and killing a bunch of black people and torching like a black orphanage, and yeah, yeah. Yeah, great quality, uh, great quality rioters you got there, guys. But uh, New York draft riot was basically a race riot. It was 
horrible. Actually, you read some of the accounts, it's like it's like another civil war battle. But yeah, so basically, just because you were in Southern didn't mean you were pro-Confederate. Just because you were Northern didn't mean you were pro-Union. And of course, if you were a black person in the South, odds are you were pretty pro-Union for obvious reasons. Myth number four, broad myth. What did the fighting in the Civil War look like? There's usually a pretty clear image. It's usually a big long lines of men in blue and gray with flags waving in a clear open field with no real obstructions. They go up and shoot each other close range for a while. And this is uh, exemplified by something like the movie Gettysburg or um, where they're assaulting over trenches across an open field, sometimes even at night. Okay, for the first thing, night fighting was, I think there's like, I can put on one hand the number of night fights there were in the Civil War. Because before electricity, this was basically a crapshoot, and most of them ended really badly. I think only one succeeded, and that was Battle of Rappahannock Station. Long story. But, um, okay, first off, this whole thing where the Civil War was fought on open fields and tight formations like the movies. Sometimes. Yeah. Like, Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg is an example of that. But that's not normal. That was not usually the rule. There were very... Compared to European battlefields, there were very few big open spaces for Civil War armies to just maneuver around and fight each other. Whenever there's a Civil War battle, it often occurred in like really dense, grown-up terrain, forests or mountains or rocky hills, and it looked so much different than it does like from a bird's eye view on a game map or something. Because for one thing, these were these were still very, you know, these are very, very early rifles, and they put out this smoke. And after a volley or two, no one could see anything. The entire battlefield was covered in smoke. It was almost impossible to observe anything at all. Generals would just be looking at smoke clouds and like riding around trying to find where their regiments had gotten to. Uh, This results in very confused fighting. And in places like the Battle of Shiloh or the Battle of Chickamauga or the Battle of the Wilderness, these incredibly big, incredibly bloody battles... uh, Chickamauga was the second bloodiest battle of the Civil War in, in northern Georgia. It's never talked about. It's Because there's Gettysburg, then there's Chickamauga. Chickamauga was a bloodbath. But it was fought in this, such as, this mountainous northern Georgia terrain, dense forest, uh, just brambles and creeks and streams and ravines. And it, like no one really had control over anything. I'm going to talk about generalship a little bit later, but... It was almost impossible to have any idea of even what was going on at certain points. People would be in, wind up in the wrong place. Whole units would march into the wrong area. You could not keep a neat formation in this situation to save your life. Soldiers generally kept in neat formations in this time period because of these command and control problems. Of how do you, how do you keep a unit moving of up to 500 or more men moving in one direction for a certain period of time in this just incredible confusion? I mean... Half the time, you guys are half out of uniform, especially if you're the Confederates. You have bits and pieces of uniform here and there. You don't really look like you, especially late in the war, you don't look like you're wearing any uniform at all. (laughs) But there's all this smoke and there's all these trees and the wilderness was famous. The Battle of the Wilderness in May 1864, very close to Fredericksburg, Virginia, where um, the forest was so thick you couldn't see 50 feet in front of you. And Grant and Lee, Joan Grant and General Lee, they had tens of thousands of men moving around in this absolute wilderness. Just, it was called the wilderness, the locals called it the wilderness, and it was. And like, almost impenetrable force, and units got lost, entire divisions got lost and turned around, ended up in the wrong place. 
and there, there was only a few roads and everybody was constricted to fighting on the roads. So you have like thousands of men just mobbed up fighting down this one single dirt road, essentially. And it's, it's, it could be, it could turn into chaos fast. And the, one of the big issues was sorting the order out of that chaos. <laughs> that was one of the key components of generalship in this war. But yeah, the nature of the fighting was chaotic and it was horrifically bloody. It, it was very high casualties. The Battle of Stones River in December 1862 near Murfreesboro, Tennessee, sees like 33% casualties on both sides, killed and wounded. That's, that's hor- horrific casualties for two days of fighting. That's remarkable. That's higher casualty rate than Gettysburg. And it was fought almost entirely in this very cold, wintry forest in Tennessee where no one knows what's going on half the time. Like, if you're just... There's, there's entire stories about officers, like, getting separated from their units and riding around the battlefield trying to find where their regiment got to. It's such incredible confusion. There's all this smoke. And a lot of times there's rain. And there's all these dense... This dense terrain... It doesn't look anything like the neat lines you might see in like a video game or a movie. Like there's nothing neat about this. It's absolute chaos. And uh but even that, even the big bloody battles, that wasn't the norm in a lot of the Civil War as far as the nature of the fighting goes. In much of the western areas, we'd already talked about Indian territory recently, but many of the western areas like Kentucky or Missouri or Arkansas, especially in areas where the population itself was divided as to Union Confederacy. A lot of these border states, Kansas, there was a lot of guerrilla warfare, guerrilla fighting, bushwhacking, or jayhawking, as, as they called it. I described a little bit of it, and this could be this could be remarkably devastating. This could be horrific. Um, there's lots of cavalry raids where the Confederate cavalry would slip behind Union lines and go pillaging and burning. Union do the same thing in Alabama or Georgia or Virginia. So a lot of these, a lot of how the war looked wasn't the big battles you see in the paintings. It was, um, there's only one movie I think that really portrays this at all. And it's a movie called The Outlaw Josie Wales, an old Clint Eastwood movie, where he, um, ends up joining the guerrilla band after his, uh, after his wife and kid get murdered by guerrillas. He ends up joining a Confederate guerrilla band. And there's a scene later on where um, the, he, they surrender after the war is over and the Union officer just orders them all massacred. Which uh, not only didn't happen, but it's actually a an atrocity that the Confederates inflicted on the Union in late 1864 near um, during the Missouri raid of General Sterling Price. Yeah, so... That was a Confederate massacre of Union soldiers. They switched to make it a Union massacre of Confederates so that uh, certain audiences would appeal to the movie more, but what are you going to do? Real massacre, they just switched the sides to make it look better for certain audiences. But all in all, Outlaw Josie Wells is a pretty decent Clint Eastwood flick, that that aside. But uh, so guerrilla warfare was seriously the, ish, the, the main mode of warfare in a lot of these areas. All right, next is uh, also weaponry weaponry um you'll see a lot of bayonet charges in the movies a lot of uh you know fixed bayonets and they'll put the bayonet on their rifle and they go storming over the parapet you'll see a lot of cavalry charges with uh guys rushing in with mounted sabers to cut each other down and edged weapons made up such a tiny minuscule minority of civil war battlefield casualties i have have a figure here from um the civil war dictionary where uh out of 250,000 wounded treated in Union hospitals during the war, 
only 922 of those wounded were the victims of sabers or bayonets. And a large number of those were (laughs) from fights within camp, like some two soldiers get into an argument over the cook fire or something, or by accident, or or from guards trying to stop a drunken soldier. So many of these were outside the normal realm of combat. Edged weapons were rarely, rarely the cause of casualties. You were much more likely to get shot or blown up by artillery. Those were the killers. Artillery especially was getting much more lethal in this time period. Um, so yeah, the weaponry. Very few edged weapon, very few cavalry charges. I think the number of legitimate cavalry charges in the Civil War is almost minuscule. How cavalry fought in this war was like what was called dragoons. That's what dragoons would do. The dragoon is... A cavalryman, it's basically a mounted infantry. They would ride to the battle, they'd hitch their horses, they'd leave someone holding their horses, and then move up with their rifles and shoot. Cavalry was basically mounted infantry. They were just much more mobile. Many of these Civil War cavalry battles, where cavalry is fighting, doesn't look like them charging into each other with sabers. Instead, they are stopping when they see each other, dismounting, grabbing their carbines, and shooting. And finally, a uh, medical... Every, every movie you'll see has a, has a hospital scene where they're just bringing men in, no chloroform, no anesthesia, just hacking their limbs off, amputation, just a pile of limbs outside the tent. The pile of limbs part was true, but anesthesia was very commonly used in Civil War surgeries. About 90% of Civil War surgeries happened under, under anesthesia. This was thanks to uh, the advances that had been made during the Crimean War, which had gotten over to America uh, Clara Barton, the founder of the American Red Cross, big fan of anesthesia. She learned this from uh, her role model, Florence Nightingale. So a lot of 90% of surgeries are done with anesthesia. Uh, Stonewall Jackson, one of the most famous examples. Stonewall Jackson was injured by friendly fire during the Battle of Chancellorsville. He's taken back. They put him under chloroform. And they have to cut his left arm off. Amputation wasn't done because doctors were cruel or callous. It was done because infection. Infection would kill you way before blood loss would. Jackson had been shot several times in his left arm, and these so they have to cut the arm off before it infects the rest of the body. The the wound is the the bullets aren't going to kill you. The wound they cause is going to get infected, and that's what's going to kill you. It didn't work. Uh, Stonewall Jackson got, I think, tuberculosis and died eight days later anyway point is, the fighting doesn't look like it does in the movies a lot of the time, especially not the movie Gettysburg, which is a very romantic, sepia-tinged image of that battle. But I'll get to that. All right, myth number five, the South had the best generals. Okay, so when the people say the South had the best generals, they're talking about Lee, like 90% of the time. We'll get to Lee. I'm going to talk about Lee a bit more in a minute. But they're usually talking about Lee and his little uh, his little cadre of generals like Stonewall Jackson and Jeb Stewart. So yeah, about this. The South had the best generals myth is linked to the idea that the South was better in general. Just better soldiers, but they were overwhelmed by superior northern forces. I would argue right now, the best general of the war was Ulysses S. Grant. Robert E. Lee is a close second. I'm going to discuss those guys soon. But the, the point of this is, is that there were some... The, the level of leadership in the Civil War in general, there was a few standouts, some decent guys, and a bunch of crud. Just a bunch of crappy generals. And yeah, that's most military leadership. That's most organizations in general. But okay, so how did you become a general in the Civil War? Some of them were professional soldiers. Some of them have been trained at West Point Military Academy. All the 
most all the best generals and most important generals have been West Pointers. They had served in the regular army before the war for a certain length of time. Many of them had fought in the Mexican-American War as young lieutenants and captains. Robert E. Lee was very famous for his service as a captain in the Mexican War. And they were hired by one side or the other when the war began. Like, hey, come be a general. The big problem here is that a lot of, most of these guys had no experience commanding large armies. Okay, I would, I, I'm, I'm being too cautious. None of them did. None of them remotely had this experience. The commander of the armies at the Battle of Bull Run, the first major battle of the Civil War, uh, none of the generals on either side had ever commanded a force this large, ever in their lives. The largest army any of them had ever seen was Winfield Scott's 10,000-man army in Mexico. They were each commanding 30,000 men now. No one had any level of experience commanding an army this size. The pre-war army was very small. Most of them, at most command levels, had probably commanded a company or two in combat, if that. And now they're commanding, you know, thousands of men, which is one of the big reasons for all those command issues. Like, no one had any experience of how to do this. But this meant that there was a very, very steep learning curve, especially the larger a unit gets. The larger a unit gets, it gets exponentially harder to command and control. And only a few ever rose to this level. Most Civil War generalship was bad. I'm going to say that. I'm also going to qualify with the fact that most generalship is bad, and only a few of them are really good at it. So you have to have this institution, this training institution in most militaries, to create a general competence among officers in your army. But nothing like that existed before the Civil War. You could be anybody. All these regiments, most of these regiments in the Civil War were being raised from just dudes. There was one guy, I re- I read this story with this one guy who was in his hometown in Iowa, and they were all discussing Civil Wars just popped off. Everybody's like, we should we should raise a regiment to go fight the the, the rebels. It's going to be the 17th Iowa. And like, well, who's going to be in charge of it? Oh, shoot. Well, first we have to decide what kind of regiment it's going to be. And someone's like, it's going to be have to be a foot or horse or guns. And some guy, <laughs> some guy is like, do you mean infantry, cavalry, and artillery? And everybody looks at him. He's like, they're like, I think you're the new colonel. <laughs> you know more than the rest of us. That was how it worked. Like, these just random dudes elected a captain, elected a colonel, and that was the guy that led them. He could be anybody. He could be nobody. If they were lucky, it was a maybe a Mexican War veteran or a West Point grad or a local military academy grad. Robert E. Lee's army was particularly blessed in the Civil War because they had a lot of VMI grads who were hanging around in Virginia. And so those, those guys made up a lot of the early regimental and brigade commanders. But you could be, you could be nobody at all. And bo- on both sides of the Civil War, there were these things called political generals, where especially Lincoln had to do this a lot, because we said Lincoln had to keep run this very political balance, this political fine line to keep the war Democrats on board. So when this random important Democratic politician says, hey, I want to be a general, Lincoln says, you know what? Fine, I'm just going to try to keep you somewhere where you don't get in too much trouble. They usually did. Uh, some of the Union's worst defeats in the Civil War were because they had some random Rhode Island congressman who's now a major general in charge of an army who just gets his butt handed to him somehow. But the Confederates had these guys too, and these guys bowled a lot of stuff. It was, But when, I, when people say the Confederacy had the best generals, they're looking at a couple of guys the Confederacy had in the East, in Virginia. They're not looking at the West. Oh my, oh Lord, uh, Braxton Bragg and John Bell Hood, who spent a lot of time commanding the major armies in Tennessee, Georgia, Mississippi, 
These two men might have been the single least competent people to ever put on general stars in American history, and they were both Confederate generals. They ruined their army. Bragg was so Bragg had some decent Bragg was a West Pointer. He was a civil he was a Mexican War hero. Uh he had some very basic tactical administrative skills, but he was just such a douchebag. He was just such a nasty human being. Nobody liked Braxton Bragg. He was such a failure as a leader, failure as a um like all his subordinates hated him. They despised him. There was a story Grant would tell later on about when Bragg was an, was a young officer and where Bragg was appointed as both the executive officer of his unit and as the battalion's uh, supply officer. And he would send messages to himself as the, as the XO asking for supplies. And as a supply officer, he would deny them. So he was sending himself a request, then denying it and going back and forth and back and forth. He couldn't figure out what to do. So he went to his superior. His superior said, Bragg, you've argued with every officer in the army, and now you're arguing with yourself. But uh, yeah, Grant beat Bragg like a drum. Bragg was so utterly toxic as a commander. So of course, he's like, he's he has the name of the second largest army base in the United States. Uh, there was this part of the, right after the Battle of Chickamauga, where um, Jefferson Davis, President Jefferson Davis of the Confederacy, hears about these command issues Bragg is having, goes down to the army outside Chattanooga, Tennessee, talks to all the generals who are like, Bragg is garbage, Mr. President, get rid of him. He sucks. He's miserable. He calls them all in, has a big meeting with Bragg, and he has like, he goes through each of the generals and says, okay, tell Mr. Tell General Bragg what you told me. And they tell him to his face, they don't want to work with him anymore. They hate him. And Davis is like, well, Sounds like you've got some stuff to talk about. And Davis leaves and leaves Bragg in command after all of his subordinates just told him how much they hate him to his face. Davis loved Bragg. Davis thought Bragg was the, the bee's knees. He thought he was the best general ever. Davis was not a great judge of character or commandability. So he kept Bragg in charge after undermining him to every single one of his subordinates. Sounds like the problem was Davis, actually. But uh, he kept putting Bragg in charge of things later on after Bragg gets whipped by Grant. It's, there's Bragg. So Confederate had the best generals, not Bragg, and not John Bell Hood. John Bell Hood commanded the same army later because Jefferson Davis liked Hood because he was aggressive. He liked aggressive generals. Hood was the uh, Leroy Jenkins of Confederate generals in the Civil War, of generals, period. Uh, Hood never saw a fortified position he didn't want to attack and get his entire army slaughtered doing so. Yeah, there's one particularly bad battle at Franklin, where Hood just orders a stupid, reckless attack, a unfathomably stupid attack on these uh, on these Union lines outside Franklin. I mean, Pickett's charge was bad. Lee, Robert E. Lee ordered an attack over a op- mile of open ground after a long artillery bombardment against an enemy that was not entrenched. Hood at Franklin orders a frontal attack over two miles of open ground with no preliminary bombardment against an entrenched enemy, and his army gets wrecked. It gets massacred. So, of course, John Bell Hood, is uh, his name grace is the largest U.S. Army post in the United States. So, yeah, two real winners right there. And, you know, anyway, but uh, those are two big examples. But on the whole, the level of leadership on both sides was about the same overall. You got a bunch of mediocrities, some real real stinkers, 
some decent competent ones and a few really good ones. I think there were only three generals in the Civil War who really rose to the level of leadership of an army. They were Ulysses S. Grant, Robert E. Lee, and William Tecumseh Sherman. Two Union, one Confederate. Some, some folks will say Joseph Johnston for the Confederates. I disagree. I don't have 30 minutes to explain why, so let's just say three generals I would consider really capable of leading an army out of the hundreds of generals in the Civil War. So no, the Confederacy did not have a notable leadership edge over the Union. And especially in the West, Grant and Sherman dominated most of their opponents. They were head and shoulders above people like Bragg or Hood or Pemberton or any of these other guys. So, yeah, not the, uh, the South did not have the best generals. Both Northern and Southern generals were pretty average on the whole. They all had a f- bunch of stinkers and a few good ones. Moving on. Myth number six. Robert E. Lee and his image. Okay, I've read a lot. When I was a kid, Robert E. Lee was a personal hero of mine. Uh, I I greatly admired him. I greatly esteemed him. And uh, over time, that obviously has changed. Um, I've read a lot more about him. I've read a lot about, uh, uh, especially Ty Sidula's uh, Robert E. Lee and Me was an excellent, also written by a, a Southern boy who came to have his views of Lee changed. Granted, there are some people out there who say that, you know, Lee wasn't a good general. And I hardly, I strongly disagree with that. And this is where I do the 50,000 word essay. But okay, so a couple of things to know about Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee is, for many people in the South, he is sainted. He is the marble man, the untouchable image of the perfect Southern gentleman and Southern hero. Just this hero figure, almost Christ-like. There's a, there's a common joke in the South where um, a little boy comes home from school in, like, Georgia or somewhere. His mom's like, you know, how'd you how's your day at school? He's like, fine, mama. There's just one thing I'm confused about. Uh, was uh, General Lee in the Old Testament or the New Testament? And there, you'll see people get very upset at the mere criticism of Robert E. Lee. And I'm not going to go so far as to say Lee was the devil incarnate. Lee, like a lot of these Southerners who fought for the South, fought for the Confederacy, had complex motivations, as do we all. Gonna bust a couple of myths about Robert E. Lee right here, though. Number one, Robert E. Lee was not anti-slavery. You'll see this a lot. You'll see this very openly. Robert E. Lee was much had much was not a aggressive f- Southern fire eater. There were these people in the South who were aggressively pro-slavery. Slavery is the greatest thing ever. Those were the fire eaters. Robert E. Lee was not one of them. But he was not an abolitionist. He wasn't even really that uncomfortable with the idea of slavery. He seems to have had like a slight distaste for it, but nothing near to the point where he was going to do anything to get rid of it. He once wrote something along the lines of, the slavery is a moral and political evil. Cool. That he also felt that it was more of an evil to the white race than the black race. That's that's really debatable. That's really debatable, Robert E. Lee. I don't know which. I don't know how. Eh, I don't know about that. But his whole attitude was, God will get. God will see fit to end slavery in time. The black race is not ready to be free, and uh, slavery is currently the best thing for them. You'll still see traces of this today. Whenever someone's like, you know, what? Why? Why are black people complaining about slavery? Otherwise, they'd still be in Africa. Mm, that's that's a that's a that's a. That's a uh, industrial, that's a Costco-sized can of worms to open there. 
Point being, Lee was not anti-slavery. He owned slaves. His family owned slaves, and he administered his uh, his wife's uh, slaves that she inherited from her father. And there was he ordered slaves to be whipped at certain points. There is a story that Lee personally whipped a slave. This story is very apocryphal. I don't know if I buy it, not because Lee didn't believe in whipping slaves, but because Lee would have considered that work like not his role as a Southern aristocrat. He would have left that to certain people instead. He wasn't morally opposed to it. He felt like it was sometimes necessary, but he did try to hunt down and escape slaves, so on and so forth. Lee, I compared to George Washington and his views on slavery, whatever his personal feelings, and he may have had some, he was, he made certain gestures after the war towards uh, racial acceptance, but he would never take a stand against it. There's no reason, like, he felt like it was part of the social order. He didn't want to, he wanted to preserve the social order. Lee was more conservative than he was rapidly pro-slavery, but that meant preserving slavery. But uh, Lee also... But moving on to more to his, um, otherwise, besides that, his personal life was pretty, pretty, pretty decent. He was, a, everybody, everybody likes Lee. Like, even people who detest the cause he fought for. And, like, note Lee is just, like, this very polite, respectable person, except for his close staff officers who were like, you don't see this guy behind closed doors. He can get real pissy sometimes. But Grant, when when Lee surrenders to Grant at Appomattox, Grant says something like, you know, you know, I, d- I didn't feel like gloating at this, you know, this very honorable, very, sa- you know, this very dedicated enemy who we fought so long against. I don't feel like gloating over it. Even if, however, Grant continues, he fought for one of the worst causes that I think human beings have ever fought for. Grant had very qualified opinions about Lee. But, uh, so Lee was also... Also, has this image sometimes it also feeds into the image that Lee was too noble and antiquated and almost knightly to really embrace modern styles of warfare, and that's why he lost. And this is, goes into the whole idea that Lee was a bad general. This is there's this knee-jerk response now to you know people saying, "Oh my goodness, Lee's the greatest general who ever lived." No, uh, but then people will say, "No, Lee was actually a garbage general who ruined the war for the South." Also, no. Okay, so Lee wasn't infallible, but Lee also wasn't a hidebound antiquated general. He wasn't a bad general. If he had been a bad general, how it wouldn't have been very impressive for the North to beat him, would it? No. Lee was an outstanding general. He made he had certain deficiencies of judgment and character that made caused him to make certain mistakes. But Lee, you can see Lee getting better as time goes on. When uh Lee's biggest mistake was Pickett's charge at Gettysburg. This attack at Gettysburg where he sends 15,000 men across an open field and they get wiped. Um, I'm not going to delve too deep into that, but there are, if you get into Lee's psychology, there are reasons he thought it would work. And when he didn't, he recognized that he'd made an enormous mistake and regretted it immediately and modified his tactics from that point on. After Gettysburg, you will never see Lee doing anything like this again. Lee is fighting extremely defensively. Lee is building a lot of breastworks and entrenchments. He is uh, he is wearing the Union forces down rather than trying to launch these futile assaults again. Lee changed his tactics when he realized something wasn't working. A lot of it's more than you can say from a lot of Union generals or Confederate generals in the war. More than you can say for a lot of modern generals. When the tactic isn't working, you change the tactic rather than nope. We can keep doing the same thing and hope it works. Um, 
So Lee was not infallible. Lee made certain major mistakes. And Lee made even like smaller mistakes that don't get that much of attention. Like there were several times that Grant outmaneuvered Lee when Lee is supposed to be this master of maneuver, this master of, you know, tricking the enemy. There was times that Grant got one over on Lee. Lee also wasn't a bad general. Lee especially was the best tactician of the war, hands down. He um, achieved numerous successes with a smaller army, just outmaneuvering and thrashing Union armies. He was just one of the top three, Lee, Grant, and Sherman, top three. Both of them outstanding at all the stuff that makes an army tick. Lee had a Lee had a very good eye for talent, for picking his picking really good generals and reorganizing his army. Great eye for talent. He always was able to pick out the people who would do what he would need them to do. He started running out of those guys later on in the war when they started getting killed a lot. Um, Lee was a very aggressive general. Very finds the jugular and he goes for it every single time. But Lee also Lee's battles always caused high casualties. A lot of, he gets a lot of criticism for this. That you know your battles Lee cost the Confederacy too many casualties. That's why they lost the war. No, Lee, Lee was Lee was trying to end the war with a decisive victory because he knew the South could not win a long war. Unlike a lot of perceptions about Lee not understanding the broader strategy or context of the war, it's one of his constant criticisms. Lee very clearly understood the political dimensions of the war. He read Northern newspapers. He was paying close attention to the Northern political scene. And he timed his offensives, he timed his attacks and battles to try to influence politics in the North. He knew how fragile Lincoln's uh, Lincoln's coalition was that was running the war. And he hoped that if he could defeat an army, could defeat a Union army on Union soil, that it would cause such a shock to the Northern system that Lincoln's coalition would finally fall apart. And that was the key to Southern victory. And as we'll, as I'll get to at the end, I think this was the only way to, for the South to win. As long as the North stayed dedicated to the war, the South was not going to win. Lee's attacks, Lee's battles in Virginia and Pennsylvania and Maryland were focused on breaking Northern unity, breaking Northern political will. That was their most vulnerable point. That was the only way the South could win. People criticized Lee for not staying on the defensive. Why did Lee invade the North? Why did Lee attack at Antietam and Gettysburg? Lee was trying to find his decisive morale-breaking battle. He failed to find it, but that doesn't mean that probably wasn't the best strategy. I mean, all these other Confederate generals who did stay on the defensive, people like Joseph Johnston, they weren't losing the war, but they also weren't winning the war. Lee was trying to win. And Lee, easily the best Confederate general, I think the only one who um, could have won, he made certain mistakes that prevented that. You can't fault, you can't deny his mistakes. But Lee was pro-slavery, not saintly, not this marble, touchless, sinless man, not a Jesus Christ figure. But he was also the best general the Confederates had, and their only real chance to win was probably under his command. Okay. Myth number seven. Ulysses S. Grant and his image. I got to do the other side. Grant is one of my favorite generals of all time. I'm a huge fan of Ulysses S. Grant. I think he's fascinating. I think he's he's not as flashy. He's not a flashy general. He never was. And that's what draws me to him, I think. He seems so plain. Just so just like just he's just kind of there. You just see the image of him just sort of sitting there. Almost he almost looks stupid. He almost looks kind of dull. But there was this 
surprisingly simple but clear genius at the heart of Ulysses S. Grant. And he started out as a nobody. Like, this guy was like, they found him. He was offered a general's commission when he was like, offered a command first in the Civil War. He was working as a store clerk at his dad's general goods store. He'd, he'd been out of the army for a while because he had some problems with alcohol back in the 1850s. Left the army, failed at every business venture he tried. Now he's now he's working retail, and they bring him out of retirement, dust him off, and give him a small command, and he succeeds brilliantly. Give him a large command, he succeeds brilliantly. Grant's high Grant's qualities were not like Lee's. Lee was the uh, Lee was the charismatic, just the Southern gentleman. That's Lee's image, and it's more or less true. Grant was the pragmatist. Grant was the uh, determinator. Uh, I talked before about how, you know, all this crazy confusion that went on in Civil War battles. Grant was the guy who was always cool, always kept his composure, always just never panicked, ever panicked. At Shiloh, his, uh, his first really big battle that he leads, everything's gone to hell. The North has been caught by surprise, and it's partially Grant's fault. And uh, Union troops are like, the Confederacy's come out of nowhere with 40,000 men. They're overrunning the Union camps. Any other, like, 99% of other Civil War generals would have lost their minds. They would have broken down. Grant doesn't. Grant is going around reorganizing things. Like, he acts like nothing's wrong. And that was Grant. Um, his very first battle, he fought with Robert E. Lee. It's late in the war. Grant has defeated, like, all these other Confederate generals. And Lincoln's like, all right, you're ready to tackle the... The opposing champion brings him east to fight Lee. Grant is sitting on a tree stump, just whittling, like listening to reports and offering advice and, you know, telling, you know, giving out small directions. He's letting other generals do the managing. His job is to stay cool and keep everybody else calm. This one staff officer comes riding up, screaming about how General Lee's turning our flank. He's he's gonna overwhelm the army. And Grant just like throws his crap to the ground. He's like, I am sick and tired of hearing what General Lee is going to do. All of you guys seem to think that he's some magician, some wizard who's going to do a double somersault and appear in our rear and both our flanks at the same time. We should worry about what we're doing ourselves instead of worrying about what Lee's going to do. And that was Grant. Grant's like, guys, panicking is the worst thing we can do. We have to stick together. We have to stay calm. And we're going to pull this thing out. Very early in the war, Grant has an experience he talks about in um in his memoirs which i've read it's one of the best memoirs ever written in the Amer in the english language i think where he's leading his regiment to go fight this confederate regiment he's getting more nervous and more nervous like because uh jeff thompson's over that ridge and i don't know what's gonna happen i'm so worried <laughs> he's like looks at his men behind him he's freaking out on the inside and they get at the top of the hill and they see that the confederate unit has run away that uh they decided they didn't want to fight Grant's unit and ran off. And Grant realizes they were just as scared of me as I was of them. Maybe even more so. And he kept that mentality throughout the war. Like, you know, the, these, these, these guys aren't geniuses. They aren't wizards. They aren't masters of warfare. We're the same as they are. And as long as we keep our cool, we got this. And uh, Grant... I mean, that sounds pretty simple, but it was something the Lodge Generals couldn't do. And Grant brought that cool all the way to the top as the commander of all the Union armies. And uh, Grant wins brilliant victories. The, the Vicksburg campaign in 1863, where he takes the last Confederate outpost on the Mississippi River, is Napoleonic. That is the, 
it is the most brilliant campaign of the Civil War. I mean, again, again, I don't have all day to talk about it, but that is the that is the hallmark. Lee can't touch that as far as brilliance is concerned. Grant just hands Bragg's butt to him at Chattanooga, and they send Grant east to tackle Lee. And it's these are the two prize fighters, and Grant and Lee. Any argument that either of these people is a bad general. I mean, because usually the argument is, well, Grant sucked, but Lee was amazing, or Lee sucked, but Grant was amazing, is disproven by the fact that they spent 11 months with their armies beating each other to a bloody pulp in some of the worst battles in American history. This is where that wilderness battle happens. This is where the Battle of Spotsylvania happens, where a tree trunk is sawed in half by the number of rifle bullets shredding through it, where it's almost World War I level of trench warfare and mass infantry assaults and artillery and Grant and Lee are just grappling in this insane 11-month struggle all the way to Appomattox Courthouse. It's one of the bloodiest, most devastating campaigns of the Civil War. Only two people who are really, really good at war. It's like the unstoppable force meeting the immovable object. Bo- both are maneuvering, both are hard fighters, both are aggressive fighters, and it shows. The, the casualty list is astronomical. It's, but uh, So these myths about Grant, right? There's, there's some myths about Grant, and... Uh, Grant was not a slave owner when the Civil War began. You often see that trotted out. Well, Grant owned slaves when the war began. No. Grant owned one slave in his life. He bought the guy because he needed help on his farm, because he was trying to do some farming. He failed at that. But he uh, gave the guy his freedom a few months later when he realized how crappy he felt owning a slave and ordering him to do things. Grant only owned one slave in his life, and he freed him because he... struck so deep at his moral core that he couldn't do it anymore. Uh, yeah, that's not a guy who is, uh, who's really <laughs> on board with slavery at all, of course. Grant was also not drunk during any of his battles or campaigns. Grant had an alcohol problem. Grant had a problem with overdrinking. He might have been an alcoholic, but he drank at moderate rates later in his life. He drank at moderate rates sometimes during the Civil War. He was drunk a couple of times during the war, like during the Vicksburg campaign, like during one of the long lulls for like a month or so, he had he went on a binge one night because he wasn't getting anywhere. He was frustrated. He was tired. He was miserable. Gets back up the next day. Let's get started. His uh, he even had a, his staff officer, um, his chief of staff, John Rawlins. John Rawlins's main job was to keep you know an eye on Grant to make sure he was doing okay with alcohol. John Rawlins like Grant messed up like twice in the war. Other than that, he was always sober. He was always stone sober. So not the uh, not the heavy drinking General Grant that is often seen in the stereotypes. Grant had an alcohol problem. He knew how to manage it. Sometimes he fell off, but everybody knows that happens sometimes. And it didn't happen during active campaigning or ever during a battle. Grant was sober during every battle. And also this idea, Grant, the myth of Grant as a butcher. As Grant just overwhelmed Lee with n- raw numbers until... The South was defeated. Like, that's what happened. Grant just used human wave. I've seen people accuse Grant of using human wave tactics. Nothing like this happened. Grant's army suffered high casualties fighting Lee because it was Robert E. Lee, and he was the best general the Confederates had. Grant's other campaigns, Grant's like the Vicksburg campaign was remarkably low in casualties. Grant made some stupid frontal assaults. He made a one very bad mistake at a place called Cold Harbor outside Richmond, where um he launched a major assault against Lee's lines, and it was a bloody repulse. And Grant's like, oof, oof. Later says in his memoirs that he always regretted that that last attack was ever ordered. 
But as we've seen, Lee also ordered frontal assaults. And lots of people in the Civil War off fought unimaginable frontal battles that ended in high casualties. The war was just a high casualty war. The Overland campaign against Lee, Grant versus Lee, was just a high casualty campaign. This wasn't because Grant was a drunken butcher sending thousands of men to their deaths. It was because both these generals were highly skilled, highly aggressive, highly lethal, and both and the soldiers on both sides wanted to win the war. They were super motivated, and that tends to result in high casualties. So no, Grant wasn't drunk, he wasn't a butcher, he wasn't a slave owner. He was one of the top two or three best generals the United States has ever produced. Uh, I would say Grant, George Washington, and George C. Marshall. Those are my three. If you disagree, send me hate mail. Uh, let's see. All right, myth number eight. This can be a short one. The Eastern Front, Virginia, was the most important theater of the war, and Gettysburg was the turning point of the war. This is qualified. I want to be very clear. Materially, economically, militarily, the Western theater of the war Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, Louisiana. Materially, that was the decisive theater of the war, where Grant and a bunch of other generals like John Pope and Henry Halleck and Don Carlos Buell, George Thomas, Admiral David Farragut, when they essentially conquered western Tennessee and Mississippi and Louisiana, going down the Mississippi River, splitting the South in two. That was the decisive military event of the Civil War. And uh, one thing that often gets forgotten in this haze was Grant taking Forts Henry and Donelson, moving down the rivers, winning the Battle of Shiloh, capturing Vicksburg. One of the greatest blows to the Confederacy in the Civil War was the loss of New Orleans. And lots of people forget about this because it didn't involve a big fancy land battle. It wasn't even a big battle at all. Union Navy steams up the Mississippi, destroys a couple of forts and slips past them, goes in and captures the entire city of New Orleans. And New Orleans fell with barely much of a fight. New Orleans was the biggest city in the South. It was the most important seaport. It was the mouth of the Mississippi River. When New Orleans was gone, that basically shut off an entire artery to the Confederate economy. And then when Grant and Pope and all these people moved down the Mississippi River to cut off the Mississippi from the north, and these two forces meet in the middle... Confederacy is split in two, and its economy has suffered a mortal wound, and it's just going to be bleeding out from this wound for the rest of the war. And the capture of New Orleans happens very early on, like April 1862, before the war is barely a year old. The South never recovers from this loss. They're still trying to make up for it years later. But that's where the decisive military events of the Civil War happened. But Virginia was also decisive. That's where the Confederate capital was. It didn't have to be in Virginia. It didn't have to be Richmond. The original capital before Virginia seceded was Montgomery, Alabama. But Virginia was one of the most important industrial... I mean, Richmond was one of the most important industrial cities in the South. It was where a lot of the factories were. It was where the South's only ironworks were, Tredegar Ironworks. The only one that could really produce a lot of weapons. And so the South had to hold Richmond, had to hold Virginia. And also that was where the moral and psychological decisive battles were taking place. From the from the moment that Robert E. Lee took command of the army in northern Virginia in front of Richmond and drove back the Union Army when they were trying to capture Richmond in 1862 under George McClellan, Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia were the um were like the keystone, the lodestone 
to Confederate morale in the Civil War. They could lose almost everything else, and as long as Lee and his army were still out there, they still felt like they had a fighting chance. When Lee was finally defeated at Appomattox, it's like, that's when everybody else starts to surrender. Most of the, Nobody else is surrendering until Lee's surrendered. That causes a chain reaction that goes all the way through the rest of the armies. So as long as Lee was in the field and still able to win a victory against the Union, or at least hold them off, that was the keystone to Confederate morale. Conversely, Union morale was focused on Virginia, was focused on the East. And every time a Union general lost a battle against Lee, even if the real the Confederate's economy was being dealt its death blow to the West, as long as Lee was still out there and still winning battles, Northern morale had a tough time recovering. Northern morale was the, was the thing that would cost them, lose them or win them the war. It was. Because if the Northern morale collapsed and support for the war collapsed, it didn't matter how many factories they had or how many more men they had. Northern morale had to be sustained for the Union to win the war. So trying to find a victory against Lee was important. And Gettysburg was kind of that victory. It wasn't decisive militarily. Lee's army was still intact. Lee, so Lee invades Pennsylvania in June 1863. The Union Army follows him. General Meade defeats Lee at the Battle of Gettysburg. It's often considered to be Lee's great battle. It's really Meade's great battle. General Meade, unsung hero of the Civil War, General Meade won that battle. Meade outgeneraled Lee. He's almost forgotten today, but he was one of the Fort George G. Meade. At least there's a fort named after him in Maryland. George G. Meade was, was top four or five Union generals. And Lee retreats back to Virginia. Meade follows him, and that's the status quo before the battle. Nothing much has changed. Everybody's just lost a lot of men. Lee lost a lot of men. Gettysburg was the bloodiest battle of the war, but it didn't fundamentally alter the military or economic or political situation. It was a small morale boost, but the Union's darkest morale days of the war were in 1864, very near to the end when it seemed like the war would go on forever, when Grant was unable to really get a killing blow in on Lee because Lee was too good to let him do that. Grant was grinding Lee down, but Lee was not able to, he couldn't destroy Lee. He couldn't destroy Lee's army. The Union, and there was this election in 1864, the presidential election, where Lincoln was running against this defeated Union general, George McClellan, who was running for the Democrats. And there was the possibility that if McClellan wins the election, the North will sue for peace and the war will be over. So this has to be, Union morale has to be overcome. Union morale has to hold up through these really dark days of the war when it doesn't seem like Lee can be defeated. Union morale barely makes it over when Sherman takes Atlanta and when Sheridan wins battles against some of Lee's units in the Shenandoah Valley. Those hold up morale enough to re-elect Lincoln and then the gloves come off and the Union wins the war in the next six months. But the Eastern Front was less critical for what it meant on a military, economic, social, like all the normal resource things level than it was for the political level, for morale. Lee's army in Virginia was the keystone of Confederate morale. As long as it was winning victories, as long as it was resisting, Confederate morale was strong and Union morale sagged. When it was finally defeated, that's when the Confederate army start to surrender. It was the Eastern Front wasn't important because of where what was going on there because of what it represented. So it was, and again, Union morale was the decisive factor in the war, and that's where Lincoln 
really showcased how great of a president he was, probably, in my opinion, the greatest president, because he maintained that war effort, maintained that morale. One of the, again, two or three greatest uh, democratic war leaders in world history. Uh, I would rank him with Churchill and Pericles and FDR, people like that. All right, so that's why the Eastern Front and Gettysburg weren't really decisive, but they also kind of were. <laughs> I know it's not, not exactly a satisfying answer there. Myth number 10, the slaves and black people were just passive agents in the war. They were just sitting on their plantations, watching the war happen from afar, waiting to see what the white people would decide about their futures. I remember I said that every northern and southern soldier had like individual motivations, individual reasons for why they did what they did. And again, that's my theme in this season of the podcast as a whole, is that all these people have autonomy and agency and choices and decisions to make. The slaves, the enslaved black people in the South, had autonomy and agency and choices. A lot of them made the effort to free themselves. So the issue of slavery was really weird when the war began because the Union, Lincoln was anti-slavery, always had been. But he couldn't say openly this is a war against slavery because it might lose him a lot of support in the wavering parts of the North who wouldn't fight for slavery but would fight for the Union. So he has to slow roll stuff. He has to really slowly introduce this whole emancipation element into the war effort. And he has to be very careful about this. There are certain points, especially in 1861, when he's trying to win over the border states, Kentucky and Missouri, to stay in the Union. And the Union general in Missouri, John Fremont, uh, tries to declare all the slaves in his district free. And Lincoln was like, nope, 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 stop, shut up, shut up. That has to wait. And it did wait. It did wait until 1862-63, when Lincoln starts forming black units, introduces the Emancipation Proclamation, and very late in the war when he tries to pass the 13th Amendment to ban slavery. Lincoln wants the slaves to be free. And you know, if, he, if he was super radical, maybe he would have been trying like, you know, this is a war about slavery. All slaves are free now. I declare this as president. And he would have lost the war. And l- freeing the slaves always had to take a back seat to the war. Because you can, you, can, uh, you can free the slaves if you win the war, but you can't free the slaves if you lose the war. So you have to win the war first. That has to be first priority. So Lincoln slow rolls this. He was always openly anti-slavery. He was trying to, so what he does is he uses this as an element. He tries to make the argument basically, look, the South depends on slave labor to run its economy. So if I say it's a war measure, a war measure to free the slaves in the rebelling states, that is an argument I can make as, with my military powers as president and commander-in-chief. That's how he approaches things. It's very dubious legally. Uh, he has to work through, go through a lot of hoops to make it happen, but he makes it happen. But even before Lincoln does this, the slaves are making decisions on their own. When Union armies get close, like thousands of them defect, they're out of there. They're running towards Union lines. They're volunteering to help out. And, uh... Even before the war has really become about slavery, Union generals have to figure out what to do with all these refugee slaves that are showing up on their doorstep. This is, um, this is when a lot of the Union soldiers and Union generals begin to have their views changed. Before, they didn't, because they had only known about slavery in the abstract, really. They didn't know how bad it really was. They didn't know all the, the level of suffering these people had been under. But when they see these refugee slaves coming to them and asking for help, a lot of the Union soldiers and Union generals 
start to understand what exactly the South is trying to fight to preserve. This is when Grant, who was sort of dubious on the fence about it, personally, like, I don't want slaves, but I understand the system. This is when Grant becomes a full-bore abolitionist. Like, no, we have to end slavery. Sherman even has to, like, Sherman becomes a full-bore abolitionist observing this whole, how, um, just how terrible and corrupt this whole slave system is. So we see this moving, this gradual shifting of, of opinion within the Union. But the slaves were making efforts to free themselves. They were abandoning the Southern economy. They were abandoning the Southern plantations and running to join the Union. A lot of times living in really crappy refugee camps in, inside Union lines. Or they're organizing themselves to try to resist. Or they're trying to um, make the Underground Railroad function again just in wartime. And a lot of times they'll form... And they end up forming black units and they contribute a huge amount of manpower to the, to the war effort. Or in, get, in the Gettysburg campaign, one of the under-reported under things about the Gettysburg campaign is that when Lee went north, a lot of his units were up there rounding up slaves and just free black people to bring them back down to the south to become slaves. But a lot of slaves that had gone with the, U, the Confederate army, um, almost 10,000 slaves went north with Lee's army to Gettysburg. They're almost absent from any of the paintings or anything or the movies, but they were there. A lot of them took a chance and made a break for it. You can see this is these diaries from these Confederate officers that are like, you know, my he was loyal to me for 20 years. I don't know what happened. It, the, the abolitionists must have got to him. No, no. He just saw his chance. And he freaking took it. He ran. He was like, nope, 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 nope. And he's gone. He's he's up. He's up in Ohio somewhere. He's like a blacksmith now. He's having a great time. But seriously, the slaves were not passive observers. They formed units. They advocated. Uh, people like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman were actively involved in the war. Harriet Tubman led a commando raid to rescue a bunch of slaves from a plantation. Rifle in hand. Uh, they were running away themselves. And by, with this mass flight of slaves, especially from Mississippi Delta areas and Tennessee, the slaves escaping wrecked the southern economy in those areas. They were making choices with their feet. They were making decisions that affected their own lives and the and the war effort. Because when the when the slave ecosystem up and decided to leave, they were they would just rip the heart out of that plantation economy every time. And the plantation owners were so shocked. Like we treated them well. We gave them food sometimes. Why did they leave us? You know. Hard to feel sorry for those people. But yeah, they were not passive agents. They were active participants in this war. The war wasn't just about them. The war was largely fought by them. So yeah, the slaves, the black people in the American South during the Civil War weren't just the object to be fought over. They weren't the MacGuffin. They were participants. All right. Final myth. Myth number 11. The counterfactuals. The North was always going to win... Versus, the South could have won with this one neat trick. So, the North was not destined to win the Civil War. I think, I've said before, I don't think anything in history is predetermined. Some things come closer than others. The North was not always going to win. The critical factor, as I mentioned before, was Northern morale. Was the ability of Abraham Lincoln and his politicians and his faction to keep the union together and united in opposing the confederacy because there were large peace factions there were large parts of the northern body politic that did not want to support the war and if the union looked like it was losing the war those people who were on the fence might lean against them 
there was a very tense moment in in 1862 when uh, Lee is invading the North. He, this is where he fights the Battle of Antietam. And General Bragg's army invades Kentucky and he fights the Battle of Perryville. But it looks like the Confederacy is on the offensive. And this is right before the midterms. This is a month before the midterm elections of 1862. And if the Confederacy manages to do something crazy and even win a small victory in what's supposed to be Northern Territory, they might, Bragg might win Kentucky back over to the the South. Lee might win Maryland over. All these crazy things could happen. They're both defeated, and that was critical. But Northern morale looked very shaky there for a while. Something crazy like that happens. The Northern public, the Northern population might give in. They might say, we're done. This, we can't win. We can't defeat the South. This is over. Because if you look at things from a resource perspective, if you were to stack up all the men the North has versus all the men the South has, all the industry, all the railroads, the North has a clear advantage. We've been over this. The North had much better railroads, much better industry. They could produce so much stuff. They produced much more food over the course of the war. Many of the slave states had stayed with the Union, Kentucky, Missouri, Maryland, Delaware. They, they were once invading the South. But if they could not sustain their morale, if the South could outlast them, the South could win. The South, if the South broke Northern morale before Southern morale broke, before the North achieved a military victory, time was working both for and against the Union here. As long as the war went on, the Southern economy was falling apart. But as long as the war went on, the more war-weary the Union's public became. And so Lincoln had to, he's a masterful politician, excellent, is always trying to rally the North to keep up the fight while he's encouraging his generals, look, you got to win me a couple of victories within the next few months. And good generals, good Northern generals, Grant understood this. Sherman, to his detriment, never really did. Sherman was pretty, um... Sherman hated politicians, hated newspaper reports, hated the public. Sherman did not, Sherman was not a people person. <laughs> but uh, Sherman also does Sherman's march, like, it captures Atlanta right before the presidential election of 1864, which probably secures Lincoln the win. So Sherman was unintentionally helping him out on that side. Because war isn't just about resources, it's not just about men or tactics or, you know, battles or maneuvers or even economy, even re- even industrial capacity. War is also about morale, psychology, the will to win. And smaller countries, smaller countries with fewer resources but more will, beat larger countries a lot in military history. They do this all the time. This happens. This is, The Greeks beat the Persians. Uh, England beat France a few times. Americans beat the British. All these times when a smaller... The Vietnamese beat the Americans. That's a great example. Or, I don't know, maybe if you think really hard, you can think of an example happening right now where a smaller country with fewer resources but higher morale is outmatching a much larger country with more resources but very low morale. I mean, I'm not going to point any fingers, but I think we know what I'm talking about. This happens all the time. It does happen. So you can't just stack up the resources, you know, absent any human factors, any moral factors, any internal factors, and say, well, the North is clearly going to win. It was a very difficult process to muster and train and recruit and equip and send these forces into the South, and it was an even harder sell to get the North to back it up. The North, Northern morale could have broken, and that was the, that was the thing that could have cost them the Civil War. 
that they had a politician like Lincoln in charge managing that was probably one of the key factors that helped them. Also, they had several good generals, especially Grant, who always understood the political side of the war. They had, um, and they had a cause. They had a noble cause, the Union and, and emancipation. And that there was a, there was a morale benefit to knowing you were on the right side. And I think that's often underrated. Knowing that you're fighting for something that's pretty undeniably a good thing to, to free the slaves. Even if that became a factor later in the war. That factor helped sustain a lot of Union morale later in the war, in those dark days when it looked like Grant couldn't defeat Lee. So the North was not always going to win. The North had to earn it. They had to muster their resources, because you can have you have the resources, but can you use them? And they had to maintain their will to win. They had to maintain the home front. They had to maintain this mass participation, this belief in the Union cause, in the cause of freedom. And the South could have won if they'd outlasted Northern morale. But Southern morale, especially later in the war, began to break. And you can tell this, this, the morale is starting to break when very late in the war, some people start to suggest using black people as Confederate soldiers. No black soldier was ever enlisted on the Confederate rolls. None of them ever served in combat. This was, a, this was floated. It was a trial. In the very last weeks of the war, in March 1865, the Confederate Congress passes this law saying, yes, we can recruit black soldiers. But it is so controversial. Lots of Southern politicians openly say, we fought this war to preserve slavery. We fought this war to preserve the racial order. This is going to undo that. What are you doing? This is what we were fighting for. Like, you, you, because some, some, some of the Southern politicians said, we're fighting for Southern independence. The only way to keep Southern independence is to arm the slaves. And I guess that's what we have to do. But then, you know, the diehards pointed out, yes, but we're fighting for independence to preserve slavery. If you get rid of slavery in the process, there's no even, not even a point to being independent. And I'm not, I'm not joking. This is very explicit in the letters and writings and newspaper columns and speeches of all these guys late in the war, where there's talk of maybe equipping and arming the slaves to fight for the Confederacy. And these people openly saying, then we've lost. We've lost anyway. If we're talking about arming the black people, oh my gosh, then we've, we've really lost. Because that was, the, that was the cornerstone of our entire struggle. That's what the war was about. How can you say that? And again, like I said, they're not shy about it. They're very openly asking, if we're arming the people that we said don't, aren't real people, don't deserve to be men, and we're putting them besides these Southern soldiers who are fighting for their Southern honor and Southern rights, Southern manhood, then what are we even fighting for? Our entire argument for existence is based on slavery, and this is going to destroy slavery. And that's how you can tell Southern morale is falling apart, because the, the justifications for their war no longer make any sense anymore if slavery is going to die anyway. So that's when desertion skyrockets very late in the war in 1865. Desertion skyrockets. Everybody goes home like, nope, screw this. This is over. I got to defend my family from Sherman's cavalry or whatnot. And uh, Lee's army is almost disintegrated before he even surrenders that mask because everybody's just giving up and going home. Morale is broken. The cause is gone. The war is over. So let's go. Let's all go home and start writing about why we totally weren't fighting for slavery. But uh, yeah, so there's also this 
myth that the South could have won if they did this one neat trick, this one neat thing that could have won them the war. I don't know. Build more factories. Yeah, build more factories, bro. Why didn't we think of that? But there was nothing the South really could have done on a broad scale. Yeah, you can argue maybe if they'd won this battle, but probably not. Probably not. Uh, the North might have won the next one, and who knows where we'd be then. Even if Lee won at Gettysburg, he probably wouldn't have destroyed the Union Army. He would have had to go back to Virginia anyway, status quo, moving on. It might have hurt Northern morale. But as long as Northern morale remained unshaken, as long as they were committed to using their resources, as long as they found decent generals like Grant and Sherman who could use the resources and sustained morale with victories to win the war, there was no one neat trick the South could have used to win the war, short of arming and equipping the slaves. No black Confederate soldiers ever fought in the Civil War. That's another persistent myth. There's been a whole book written about it by uh, Kevin Levin. Levine, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. Search called Searching for Black Confederates, where he tracks down all the individual stories of this black soldier, Confederate soldier, this black Confederate soldier. He finds out that they're all basically bogus. The South would never have allowed that on an on a institutional level. When so Even they started thinking about it. Even when they floated it, the, the outrage was so enormous the reaction was so fierce that it never really panned out. There was like one unit that very temporarily marched in, in Richmond and they went and just worked on fortifications. They weren't allowed to actually fight. No, the, no black unit for the Confederacy ever fought because black units in the Confederacy undermined the entire purpose of the war. That's why we circle back around. The war was about slavery. It always was. Even at the end, even when the North had to make it about slavery. Lincoln had to make it about slavery. But for the South, that's what it was always about, preserving that racial order, that racial hierarchy. That was what was important to them. When there was a possibility they had, you know, when they had to choose between independence, but getting rid of slavery, and losing the war, but keeping the, the racial order, even the slightest hope of that, well, they lost. They couldn't bear the thought of winning the war, but getting rid of slavery, because that was the war. That's what the war was about at every point. The sad thing is the South kind of won in some ways, because after the Civil War, after Reconstruction, they rebuilt that racial order. They built it on the rock of Jim Crow, segregation, lynching, mob violence, hideous mob violence against black people for decades. They hold the idea of, you know, well, we lost the Civil War, but we can at least preserve the, the racial hierarchy, the racial order. We can at least get our state's rights back so we can preserve that order. So at that point, after for the next century or so, the South maintained, no, we weren't beaten. We were fighting for state's rights and the racial hierarchy. And look, we kept it. The North that got rid of slavery, but we kept everything else we could get out of it. And we came out with our honor intact is what they said. It would take another century for the uh, racial hierarchy of the South to be dealt another real serious blow, at least on the surface, by uh, the strategic genius of Martin Luther King Jr. and his work to get the Civil Rights Act and the Civil Rights Movement into the limelight. That destroyed the legal, that destroyed a lot of the uh, surface-level stuff of segregation and racism and white supremacy, but a lot of that work still remained unfinished. The Civil War and Martin Luther King's movement were partial victories. They were not complete victories. The struggle continued, and the struggle continued in different forms and different contexts. The struggle against white supremacy, the struggle against institutionalized racism, and some would say it's not over at all. 
that uh, we still have traces of slavery, lingering remnants of the many laws and many institutions and many Supreme Court cases that were designed to preserve the white supremacist order of the South way past 1865. Civil War ain't over in some ways. Civil War is still being fought. And as a Southern boy who came to identify much more with uh, George Thomas than with Robert E. Lee, with the one who stayed loyal to the Union than the one who I think really did betray it, I don't know. I think there was, it was a moral cause. It was a glorious cause. It was, you know, the battle cry of freedom they all claimed it was. And even if it was an incomplete victory, it was it was a victory. It was a victory for a righteous and noble and honorable cause. The cause of reimagining, reinterpreting, rebuilding what uh, Eric Foner called the second founding of America. And like I said, I don't think the war's over. I think the causes of the Civil War are still being fought over. But when I think about the fact that this is still an unfinished struggle, I think about what Abraham Lincoln said when he foresaw how long this struggle would take in his Gettysburg Address in November 1863. He said, quote, It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people and for the people, shall not perish from the earth." Uh, thanks for listening today, and thanks for continuing to support this podcast. Uh, thanks for listening to the first Unfiltered Soldiers of Season 2. There'll probably be a couple more. I'm not going to rely on these too heavily. But I hope you had a good time listening to this. I hope you learned a lot of stuff. Uh, even if you didn't learn too much, I hope you enjoyed listening to it. All right, so we got another episode in two weeks. Look out for that. That's going to be a more mainline episode. We're going to get to start our first series of season two in two weeks. That's going to be the Philippine-American War. We're going to the 1890s, and uh, we're going to fight a nasty guerrilla war and see if America comes out with its honor intact. Probably not. All right, but if you want to read a bunch of articles I've written on the American Civil War, a bunch, they're all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I'm on Facebook and Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod, or drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. If you really, really don't like Unfiltered Soldiers, or you really, really love it, I want to know. I've gotten very mixed reviews on this style, so I would like to know. Lay it on me. And once again, guys, thanks so much for listening today, and I will see you here in two weeks, same place, same time, on Unknown Soldiers.